Koto Fano. Welcome back again to another department of conversation. Uh, this week, as you know, uh, me being a bit of a political tragic and loving everything uh, Trump and Trumpian, I'll have to keep an eye on it. We have purely by chance on the day that Michael Cohen did his uh, testimony in America, Associate Professor Mark Kelly from Western Sydney University. He is in Otago delivering a lecture to uh, the uh, public lecture to the Otago University around the politics of language today. And the thing that excited me most about uh, Mark Kelly was one of the examples he uses to talk about the politics of language today is Trump and how the left and the right has responded to him. So not beating around, let's just get into it. Here's Mark Kelly. And we're live. We are live. Now, no, let's continue this conversation. First of all, Mark Kelly, welcome. G'day. Associate Professor from it's Western Sydney University. That is right. Yep. Um, and you're wearing, I don't know if you can see it in the camera, Jason, does it see on the camera? You a grindcore it, yeah. t-shirt from the 1980s. Yeah. Now, as we speak, uh, Mr. Cohen is speaking uh, to... Uh, Congress, isn't it, about uh, crimes potentially committed by the President of the USA, and we will get into that. But right now, Grindcore, (laughs) an associate professor, looks like he's just come in New Zealand out of a she-had in Australia, maybe an ACDC concert. Tell me about your your T-shirt. Yeah, I mean, like I should clarify, I mean, doing doing the podcast, like uh, it's it's not like I was, uh, you know, I'd dress this way to teach, for example. Like yeah, I right. want to cultivate an image of, of respect with the students and right. so on. So your, your image you're trying to cultivate with me is what? Yeah, that, that I'm a, like a cool dad. <laughs> now, as I was saying, like one of the one of the people who invited me over from Otago University does research on on the grindcore scene or has done. So, Do you mean like as a part of the academia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Serious? Yeah, because, I mean, it's cultural studies, it's pretty, pretty right. kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, like I, yeah, I thought I'd, I'd wear this to signal... Of course, it's also pretty cold here, so it's it's covered up most of the time, but uh, not in the studio. You've left Sydney. When did you get to Dunedin? When did I get in? Yesterday yeah. evening. Right. And is there, like, it's only a three-hour difference, but are you feeling it? It's it's two hours, but, yeah, enough. Like, uh, yeah, it's pretty pathetic, but I, I feel a little bit jet-lagged, just uh, the difference between, you know, like, your 8 a.m. is my – no, other way around, my, your 10 a.m. is my 8 a.m. Yeah. So, like, I've only just got up, basically. Yeah. yeah. It's good to see where your priorities are. Sleep in late, then come have a chat with us. Dex. Well, I want to. I want to be in the best condition I can for the <laughs> chat, but right? I don't want to be sleep deprived. Um, and you're over here talking with the university. Yeah. But is this a regular thing you sort of do? Is New Zealand a regular location for you? Yeah, not at all. I would love that to be the case. This is the first time I've ever been invited to a university oh, in cool. New Zealand. So I've been over here before, but not in this capacity. Nice. Lovely part of the world down here as well. Beautiful. And I've never been down to Dundee. I mean, I was very, very pleased to get this invitation because I've never been this far south before. I mean, turn the weather on for you too. It's all of a sudden the last couple of days has just got arctically cold and it's been a beautiful summer. I was having a look actually. You've got a really, are you here for the weekend? No. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to be hot, hot, but it looks like a stunner of a weekend coming up. Right. Are you being ironic? Or? No, no, stunner as a no cloud. The, the, one of the ironies in this part of the world is winter, in my opinion, Josh will probably disagree, but winter is better than summer. Mm-hmm. It's much colder, obviously, but it's often much war- uh, drier and clearer. Summers down here can be a bit wetter and a bit greyer, so I'm I'm a fan of winter. Middle, you know, it's, it'll be a, it'll be two degrees or zero in the morning, and it'll get up to eight, but it'll be just a 
blue skies, not a cloud, gorgeous. Yeah, so. I, I, I do. Growing up here and then coming back, it's I prefer the winters down here than, than Australia. Uh, sorry, not Australia, like Auckland, because it's subtropical and so it's winters are rain, whereas down here it's just cold. But, yeah, you know, the skies will be just like this, but it'll be six degrees. Yeah, so this weekend is this, oh, you can feel the start of it coming. I heard someone say, well, it's going to be a fine weekend. It's like high of 17, 18, but it's um, going to be going to be a stunner. So, so you're missing that. Congratulations. Mm, unfortunately. So didn't Sydney just like a couple of weeks ago had like 44 or something, 45 in the city? Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, it's just been, it's, it's, I might get in trouble saying this, but I think Sydney's basically become unlivable as a result of global warming within the last of the kind of five years. Yeah. And I mean, cause I've been, I first went to came to Sydney in 2002 and back then, I think the first five years I was in Sydney, it went over 40 degrees on one day in those five years. And that that's the real uncomfortable point for me, and that's now just become a regular Sorry, occurrence. Sorry, the real uncomfortable point is 40? Yeah, yeah. Jace, the real uncomfortable point is 40. Yeah. My, my daughter, one of my... Had, do- we, we set this summer, we set... We, every summer, with like, last three summers, we've always had... We've set the... Re, reset the record where I live, um, out, just out of town in, in Mosgiel, at 36. That's the highest it's ever been. My, we moved down from Auckland about four years ago. So my 12-year-old was eight when I moved down. She has turned into a Danita Knight Otago girl like that. 14, 15, she's walking home from school. Oh, so hot. I can't handle this weather. It's so hot. And so you're like, you know, I really start, I really start to feel it at 40. Well, I should a- emphasize here, I'm originally from the UK. So like, uh, you know, my, my, you know, I don't know what, my normal... Tolerance was similar to yours, I would have thought, in the beginning. So you have acclimatised to um, to Sydney then, obviously. Well, I was always a, I was always a lover of heat. It's one of the reasons I went to Australia in the first place. Right. But yeah, I've, I've about fifteen years in, I'm suddenly kind of oh yeah, this is this is getting a bit beyond a joke now. You got the slang. Oh yeah. yeah oh yeah, 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 she's getting a bit of a joke, mate. Well, I, I just I, I think I just moved to Australia early enough that I, I yeah picked up. Uh, I mean, it's tough. I actually like when I go to the UK, everyone thinks I'm Australian, but Aussies generally can tell that I. You know, I'm a pom, yeah. which is an unfortunate position to be in, really. Like, um, so, just on that, the global warming thing. So, 45, 40s are not uncommon like they were five years ago. I mean, and you attribute that directly to? Do you think? And so, what? Ten years from now, what's going to be the case? I mean, I'm not a climate scientist, right? but the, the projections are it's just going to get hotter and hotter. I mean, that's that's what we've got to assume. I mean, yeah. And it's, I mean, look, it's already the case in Sydney. A lot of people I know have got air conditioning units, and we we have now, right? I didn't know anyone had air conditioning 15 years ago. Really? Yeah. I mean, this is central Sydney. I mean, another thing with Sydney is the the climate difference between the kind of eastern side of town, which backs onto the sea, Mm. and the the western suburbs is enormous. Like, the the temperature on a hot day, it's 5 to 10 degrees more in the far west. Um, So, but I've always lived in the centre, which is close to the sea, and... Mm. Yeah, it's it's and so I mean it's even hotter in the in the west where most people in Sydney live. Mm. So yeah, I mean it's it's pretty worrying. It's become a place where you know you need to sit indoors on a hot day with the aircon running, which is not great either. It just sounds like a sucky life. <laughs> yeah, I mean I look. I mean, so so you go from your air conditioned office to your air conditioned lecture theatre, get into your air conditioned car, and go home and get into your air conditioned apartment, and then don't leave again. Yeah, I mean, I don't do that because, of course, uh, during the summer we don't teach. So, right. uh, but yeah, no. Look, obviously, that's what most people in Sydney are doing now. That you, you, that's what you do. You go from an air conditioned office to an air conditioned car to an air conditioned house, and that's what people in in hot climates do, right? But yeah, that's it's not great. And of course, the thing that's really not great about it is that you're using more electricity, which is presumably mm. driving climate change and all the rest. So of that's it. a perpetual cycle. Yeah, yeah. Well, that seems to be the, the situation of acceleration we're in, right? Like, it's I because I haven't been to Sydney. Um, 
since I was a teenager for a very long time. But, you know, it was Pancakes on the Rocks and it was Bondi Beach and it was hot for a Kiwi, mm. but it sounds like what you're talking about now is you wouldn't even want to go out to the beach or go outside at all in those hottest summer days. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, people do. I, yeah. I think they're kind of crazy. But. <laughs> yeah. So your um, speciality, no, I don't know if that's the right word. The reason we you're over here is to talk about political la- political language. I, that's a probably too broad a subject. Um, so just nutshell it for us. And obviously, I don't know, the, the what we have here is uh, Dr. Google. Dr. Google is one of our contributors to the conversation, as is Jason, you and me. We run the Department of Conversation. <laughs> there he is. We run the, this Department of Conversation is more like a conversation over a beer than an interview. It's not passive. We don't have guests in where we go, cute question, answer, question, answer. Anyone can lead the conversation, including Dr. Google. Now, Dr. Google might lead some of the conversation today because I've been up since six o'clock watching Michael Cohen testify before the House, which has been fascinating. And particularly appropriate to have you in today purely by chance because the reason you're here in Dunedin is to talk about political language. Uh, I guess I'm nutshelling it in layman's terms, what is said versus what is meant. Uh, Ultimately, no. So you're in the right ballpark, as I was saying before, but uh, my point is not so much about the difference between meaning and, and content in language. It's between both meaning what is meant and what is said on the one hand mm-hmm. and what the effects are. I mean, that's that's really where my focus is. So what is said and meant and then the effects from that. Yeah. So the delineations between said and meant and effect as opposed to I, I, I kind of portrayed it as what is said and what is meant. Yeah. You're saying what is said is me- and meant is on one side mm. and the effects from that is on the other side. Yeah, and I, my, my, my shtick is that people have become – I mean, maybe this has always been the case. I don't know how recent a thing it is, but if we look at what's going on now and particularly in America Mm. the last few years, I think there's been way too much focus on the content and the meaning of what's said and and not enough on the the variability of the effects. Uh, That is that it's assumed that particular words always have a particular effect. Give us an example. Well, the most obvious example is words I probably can't say. So no, we run into it. Say well, no, fuck, no, no. shit, I mean, poo, whatever you want. Uh, yeah, worse ones than that. I mean, the, the, because the, the, worst, the worst words in our lexicon today, I think, are no longer uh, fuck, shit and poo, the bodily words that previously were the most taboo. Well, let me say, I used to work in um, radio and talkback, and the two worst words in talkback were the word nigger yeah. and the word cunt. Right. So those were the two words, and if uh, those were like the two that, if you and ironically, I remember doing talkback one night where we did it on the new uh, Dam Busters, uh, <laughs> the new Dam Busters film, and the debate at the time, and the original, and this is a quote, so please don't take a meme out of this, anybody, but there was a character in the original Dam Busters called Nigger the Dog. <laughs> That was the name of the yep. dog. And the debate at the time was, will Peter Jackson stay to the truth or not sort of thing? And that I did like three hours of talkback on that. So that word got mentioned quite a lot on the radio that night, but in context. But still, my boss was like, the two worst words you can say on the radio, like there's a list of BSA standards. And the beauty about being on the internet is we have no broadcasting standards. That's why you can say what well, – obviously, there's things like defamation laws, but we can use any language we want, mm. and there's no complaints. Um, but they're the two at the top of the um, complaints BSA list. Yeah. And look, what, what I think is uh, – I think it was the case until fairly recently that 
cunt was basically the worst word in the English language you could say in all contexts. It was sort of the strongest possible word. Mm-hmm. I think this is most obvious in America because there's much more sensitivity over it. But what I will call the N word mm. has come to be the most offensive single word you can utter if you're white. Yeah, right. And of course, if you're if you're black, you are allowed to use the the yeah. N word, and that that's very interesting as well. I mean, there's no other word that's treated quite quite yeah. in that way. Well, you can see how bad it is because you won't even say the word. No, in I won't. And that's right. And I yeah. take it that because that's one of the interesting things about that the way that word is treated mm-hmm. is that it's considered that even in quotation marks, mm-hmm. white speakers shouldn't say it. And I'm going to obey that because I take it that's that's basically the rule. And you know, uh, for for better or for worse, I mean. I am critical of that in the sense that I think uh, th- this shows. I mean, there's a. It's interesting with that word because there is an attention to who's speaking. I think that's very important. Like, if you want to understand what language is doing, it's important to attend to the the idea that if one person says something, it might have quite a different effect totally. or meaning to someone else's. So context is very important, and it, it's good that with the N word that is recognised. But I think it, it's still quite a blunt implement. The idea that there's absolutely no situation in which any white speaker could possibly use that word in which it's okay. I mean, it's a kind of precautionary principle, right? Like, mm-hmm. But it's uh, – I'm concerned it's, it's overcautious. But, it, but I should say my, my focus is not about, you know, particular ethnic slurs and whether they're, no, sure. they're used. And I certainly am not in the, the business of thinking, like, look, I need to stand up for our right to use ethnic slurs. I don't think that's very politically important. The reason I mention that is just it's a very crude example of the way in which uh, people are, have become very caught up with – with the word, yep. not with the effect. Yep. Do you know what's interesting about that word in particular? One of the debates going around at the moment is uh, in the hip-hop culture in America, obviously it's a huge part of the culture, so when a person goes to a concert, are they allowed to sing along mm. or do all the Caucasian, like this is genuine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, there was, I, 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 I sadly, if I had known this had come up, what I tried to remember, there was a, there was a, um, a, a, a rapper in the last couple of months and there was someone who came to New Zealand so I don't know if Jace you could probably Google it and find the there was a, a he, he pulled a white chick up onto stage and they were singing and when she sung his song with his word in it with that word he went no 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 yet you look out into the crowd and the whole crowd is singing it of which who knows 50, 40, 30% are Caucasian. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, yeah, it was, it was Kendrick Lamar. That's who it was. That, that's who it was. It was Kendrick Lamar. That's why I said he was coming because he played in, here in Dunedin not long ago. And she um, she sung along with a song and she was on stage in the mic. And he was like, you'll find that, Jace. It'll be an easy one to find. Well, we could play a bit of his there. Is that the one where he does on stage? Yeah. So that's a that's a white girl singing it on stage. Yeah, it's his song and he's playing it and he pulled her up on stage and handed her the mic. So his song is playing. Those are his lyrics. He pulled her on stage. She's singing it and he goes, "No, what are the? I mean, I'm not I'm not advocating that we should be allowed to use the N word. Let me make that clear. But where are the fucking rules these days? Yeah, I mean that that is a that that is a real issue. I mean, there's some interesting research recently that showed that um, in in the United States showed that ethnic minorities 
across the board felt that political correctness had gone too far. Ethnic and minorities yeah. thought that as well. Well, that's interesting because political correctness is obviously majorities defending the minorities. I think that's I think that's right. I mean, that's hard to quantify. My sense is that political correctness is paradoxically primarily a white invention. Uh, it's it's you know it's something that's done in the name of protecting other people rather than directly. Of course, that's, even if they don't want or need that protection. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the research I was referring to, though, the the finding was, if I remember correctly, that the reason that uh, ethnic minorities in the United States and white people as well felt it had gone too far is because they simply didn't know where the lines were. Mm. Because what is considered politically correct is constantly shifting. Right. So you know what might be okay. I mean, I, I don't think this is particularly the case of the N word, but. What might be the case, you know, at one time will radically change over the course of 10 years. And people, no, no one's sending out memos to people saying um, this is what's acceptable, this is what's not. You just kind of are expected to know this stuff. And, yeah, I mean, presumably uh, that woman just didn't think that this was unacceptable. And I suspect that might partly be a result of a kind of New Zealand-American cultural difference, right? In America it's much more widely appreciated. Well, she, she, shouldn't she probably didn't think it was unacceptable in that instance because – he dragged her on stage to sing with him his lyrics and then stopped her singing his lyrics because it wasn't so why did he so the question is why you would have thought maybe he gave her permission inadvertently but you know so it's just it goes round and round and round and round and round yeah. Again, I want to make it clear, not advocating that anyone should be able to use the word, but... No, no. But then, then where, what, what I hear you saying as well is that pendulum idea, because you don't know where the line is, you go so far one way, and then perhaps over the next hundred years or so, there'll be, it'll be found. But then again, it seems also other areas at the moment, it's the, with, and look, I'm not anti-social justice warriors, and I think in an ideal world, you know, fighting for social justice is the right thing to do. But there seems to be a pendulum swing in that movement now as well, where, you know, I had a conversation with someone the other day, they were um, following an Antifa uh, demonstration, and there was obviously a conservative American standing there holding an American flag, and they were getting attacked for being racist. Now, was that person racist? I don't know. But holding an American flag is not the metric to measure whether that be true or not. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that, that moving on, I'm, I've been quite concerned about, which is the inflation of accusations of racism and fascism in the United States. I mean, this really, I think, really got underway during Trump's presidential campaign mm -hmm. and then became quite entrenched. I mean, if anything, it's gone off the boil a bit now, but there was this move, you know, really it's a logic of kind of guilt by association. I mean, it's, it's, it is the case, absolutely, that people who are basically out-and-out out fascists did support Trump. Of course. But then the, the move was then to say, oh, because he's associated with them, Trump himself is a fascist, then, you know, every possible Every person symbol, who supported him is also a fascist yeah, now. Yeah, that's right. So, and the American flag is, I mean, look, you know, there's a perfectly reasonable argument, I think, a quite convincing argument that says, look, if you look at the history of America, which is rife with racism in a certain, you know, that America is caught up with racism, the American flag is associated with, with racism. Okay, I mean, I think that we can't get away from the fact that racism pervades every aspect of American society, and that's very important, and it's important to recognise that. I mean, the problem is if you live in American society and you start pointing at basic institutions, you point at the flag and the president and say, that's racist, that's totally unacceptable if you uh, participate in this in any way. I mean, at, at that point, you've basically created a situation, which I think you've, you've got to in America now, where anyone can be accused ultimately 
through some form of association of being being involved with this. At that point, I, it's not clear to me that you've you've got a good critical tool going with accusations of racism. I, th- I think about like I use that word before the metric. What's the measurement for that person? And I think the word racism in its definition means, in my understanding, is that my race is superior to your race. Your race is inferior solely for the fact that you are part of that race. And if you put that uh, as the underlying definition of calling someone a racist, 99% of the times we hear that accusation, it's not valid. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I want to say that. And I kind of feel, I feel like when people make these accusations, they typically have a point. Uh, that is, but I, I take it the point here ends up being very expansive, which is when, I mean, if you look at, and I, if, okay, if you have the strict definition you just put out, like believing your race is superior to other people's racist, races, I mean, actually at that point, even a lot of the people who are the most racist technically would get away with it. I mean, people like white nationalists in America, they will tell you explicitly, no, we don't think whites are superior, we just want to be separate. Uh, from that point of view... I don't think that's true, though. I yeah, mean, they, sure, they might say that yeah. because that's the public face they might want to put but they don't believe that. They believe, if you look at any of those documentaries behind the scenes, they believe they're superior. No, I think I think that's fair. But I, th- but this goes to the, the point I was going to make, though, which is I think, you know, ultimately r- racism is, you know, very widely diffused prejudice. I think, I mean, you know, studies show this as well, that, that you know, even people who think they're the most you know, politically correct and anti-racist people... If you look at their reactions to different images, say, under clinical conditions, they'll show that they have some unconscious biases, racial prejudices. I mean, from that point of view, everyone kind of is racist in a contemporary society. Well, but then don't we have to take a step back and say, what is racism? Isn't that, isn't that actually... Because I, I guess what I'm saying is, my, I'm pretty sure, is based on what the dictionary definition is. Now, now that's like saying, um, you know, the word literally... The dictionary definition for that now, although there's always that meme that it's changed. I don't think it has, but but it's not how it's used today and understood today. So maybe what we need to do, and I'm not saying you and I for the sake of the argument, Mm -hmm. but maybe what we need to do is figure out what is racism? What does the term mean in this day and age? Because, you know, um, appropriating someone's Asian-inspired dress because it's cute I don't think means you're a racist. Yeah, I mean that's that actually goes to the the argument I want to make about the the use of language. I mean, although dress is not it's it's not language in the mm-hmm. strict sense. I mean, it, it it has a similar function in in these kind of debates because it's symbolic, right? The idea is that by dressing in a certain way, you you symbolise something. The the argument there, I think, is very similar to the argument that's often made with words. That is, there'll someone will say the origin of this word or this symbol is mm-hmm. X. Yeah. Therefore, that's unacceptable. I mean, that that to me is fallacious because it implies that the origin of something determines its meaning. I mean, this then goes back to the point... And there's no evolution of that term or word or whatever Right, which is exactly the opposite of what we know about the way language works. I mean, the way we actually know language works, language is always in flux. In fact, in practice, what I understand by a word is always going to be a little bit different to what other people understand by the word. They'll think it has a slightly different connotation to me. I mean, despite... Regional differences, dialect differences. And the fact it's always changing. I mean, and we can, of course, you can point to the dictionary definition, but the dictionary definition in the end is is based on them going out and seeing the way people are using the word. So it's always prone to be changed. The dictionary will be updated and changed. From that point of view, yeah, like words don't have a single fixed meaning yeah. and consequently the I mean the, this is why I think in the end the the strategy of trying to ban words I think the real uh, prohibit particular words from being used I mean in the end I just don't think it works 
because people will just shift on to another word, mm -hmm. they'll change the meaning of another word so it occupies the space that previous word. Mm -hmm. I mean, the interesting example there is that the way that, that words that are once considered acceptable consider, become considered unacceptable because uh, they take on a pejorative meaning. So, I mean, in the, the racial area, the, the word Negro, for example, was the mm. absolute standard word to refer to black people. Mm. Coloured is another one that was absolutely standard to refer to black people. Black people used to refer to themselves in the 1960s, say, but now is considered absolutely unacceptable mm. uh, and indeed that those are forms of racial slur. Uh, and in the kind of disability space, you, you see this with the, the, the R word is a really classic example, right? The retard, which was, mm. you know, retarded was a clinical definition. And then it came to be seen as a slur. And now you have the position where, you know, people jump up and down if you use that word in any context. But I, I take it that what's happened there is that because you have, you know, a racist or ableist society, you've got words that are used to describe people which then take on a pejorative meaning because society is prejudiced against those people. Yeah. And then they try and cope with that. They try and, you know, deal with that problem by attacking the word rather than dealing with the underlying prejudices, which to my mind is not going to work at all because you'll just get the next word coming along. So could you, if you extrapolate that further, um, say, you know, looking into the crystal ball, into the future, um, could you, you know, this is obviously very pie in the sky, but the word white, referring to, you know, the three of us as white. In America, if you say, oh, you, it's just because you're white, that's almost like a put down, it's almost like a racial slur. You know, and if you take it to the absolute extreme, could, you know, in 30 years' time, calling somebody white could be an insult, technically. Is that what you're kind of saying? It look, might be now in some circles. I'm not, yeah, I'm not specific, I'm not specifically saying that, but uh, look. Yeah, any, just, just as an example. No, but look, there's, there's you certainly. I haven't, for example, I haven't seen anyone do this, but you could start saying, you know, white is a slur. I mean, the example that comes to me, uh, to, to my mind recently, is uh, debates, particularly online, of course, it's where everything happens now, <laughs> but around the use of the, the term turf, the trans exclusionary radical feminist. I don't know if you know this term. Yeah, there was a woman recently who said trans issues are men's issues or women's, not women's issues yeah. or something like that. And that, that's always been around as a strain of feminism the idea that if you're not biologically female, you're not included in the, the category of women from a feminist point of view. Uh, but, and there was. The, the move then was to label these people TERFs, trans exclusion radical feminists, and that that's – but then you had this pushback from people who were labelled that way saying TERF is a slur, right? So right. the idea then is like we're going to try and get rid of this word by saying this word is a slur against us. Of course, that didn't get much purchase precisely because uh, – people basically in general don't like TERFs and therefore uh, aren't willing to make that move. And I, I tend to think if – I mean, the only way that the word white would become recognised as slur is if – uh, one had the the purchase in the debate to to get people to kind of agree to that. So by the purchase, you kind of mean has has the the, the got the roll on, got got it to be able to be accepted and stuff. Yeah, I mean, actually, there's a this opens a really interesting question which I have no answer to. Oh, good, these is, are the best yeah. questions. <laughs> no, absolutely, as a philosopher, I totally agree with that. The which are the question of like how are these decisions being made, and that, that that's a really because there's I mean, ultimately, they're not decisions, right? The question of how does, how is it determined? I mean, it goes back to this question of like, how does the, the white girl getting on stage know whether or not she should say the N-word? <laughs> because there's, there is no central committee making this decision. Yeah. It, it's out in the ether. There's an idea that kind of everyone ought to understand this, even without anyone explicitly telling them without it being set down. Mm. Uh, and that's a, that's a very anxiety inducing and nebulous situation. But it, it, but yeah, I mean, sociologically, I don't know who's making these calls. I mean, the Twitter mobs, right? But, but it, oh yeah, but isn't it? If we're being honest, isn't it 
a suggestion made by an incredibly small number of people that then gains traction amongst a small group of people. But actually, I mean, actually, it's not a big number of people, but often it's one of those ideas of the squeaky wheel, you know, it gets news. People, un- unfortunately, the news world this day and age follows Twitter looking for headlines. And then all of a sudden it's in a major news article and then it grows from there. And then other people, I mean, the classic example um, is also, I can't think of the name, but there's like a, it's it's like, it's, it's a, is it 4chan? Is that a group where ideas and stuff get thrown yeah, around? Yeah, the online forum, yeah. They go on there and they make up bullshit stories and they turn into real movements. And the free bleeding movement is an example. I don't know that one. Free bleeding. Women shouldn't be uh, restrained oh. by, you know, by <laughs> having- By tampons. Yeah, right. basically. And that was set up on 4chan as a joke and as a troll. And then it got picked up by some people and run with like a real thing up until including, I think there was a woman in either America or the UK who like ran a marathon and, and, and bled everywhere as a, as a statement to taking ownership back. Now that was set up sort of as a, as a literally as a troll. Mm-hmm. And then it grew into a real movement. Yeah, yeah. But this, I mean, this, this really is why I still think this is kind of open question because it's, it's absolutely right. As you say, we're dealing with a, effectively a small number of people online who are influencers somehow in this space. But yet somehow they have this massive uh, impact that politicians listen to them, media listens to them, corporations listen to them. And it's radically unclear to me exactly how that transmission belt works, how how these people apparently have so much power Mm. socially. Um, But... I mean, it's it's the question of, of culture in general, really, which is like how how is it that that you know people influence culture to be changed? And uh, I mean, this this is why you end up with people with conspiracy theories and the rest of it who are going to say, "Oh, someone must be directing this behind the scenes." But I don't think that's the case either. I think it's just that, that that it's very hard to see how this stuff is happening, but yet it yet it does. Well, I think that's what the definition of viral is as well. It starts with a small group. It gets picked up by a person here and then that group grows and then someone here in that group grows and all of a sudden those groups connect because it's the internet and then all of a sudden it's nationwide and then it's international and then it's, you know, the news networks in the States and the UK and New Zealand and Australia are, are picking up on it and then you've got a movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were saying before about banning words. What about the f- flip side? insisting words get used. The classic example is the Jordan Peterson in, the, in Canada when it was, I mean, I might be paraphrasing poorly, but basically to use incorrect pronouns for someone was going to be a crime. Mm. And this is focusing on the transgender community. Mm-hmm. And Jordan Peterson was saying, actually, no, I've, it's, he's a difficult man to understand yeah. because I've seen him say two different Things I've seen him say, if one of my students asks me to use a pronoun, I use it. And I've seen him say, if one of my students asks me to use a pronoun, I don't use it. I've only heard him say the first one, but, I, you know, I'm certainly not across uh, Jordan Peterson's entire but, output. Yeah, but what I try and do is I try and take the same situation and put it in a different context. So here in New Zealand, you know, we call it New Zealand. We also call it Aotearoa. Mm. So if the government said from now on calling New Zealand was a crime, if you didn't use the word Aotearoa, you're committing a crime – people would be in an uproar. Everyone would be. But because it was involving the transgender community and there are some very, there are some sensitivity issues here at the moment, you know, for good reason, mm-hmm. it seemed to go much further. And the other thing that's unfortunate is that it, because it was involving the transgender community, for him, I believe, that then he got a lot of support from areas of society which are pretty much 
we all want to believe are not there, mm-hmm. talking about the alt-right and the far-right mm-hmm. and the, you know, those sorts of guys as well. But that was a government doing the opposite of banning words. That was a government saying you must use these words. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's a bit of both because on the one hand they're banning you from using the wrong pronoun and, yeah, and so. mandating you have to use the correct one. Um, but, yeah, that's that's right. I mean, and Peterson, I take it Peterson, look, I'm not a Jordan Peterson expert, I take it his his claim, at least now, is that, what he was standing up for is not not that he wanted to misgender people, but that he felt that the government had no business legislating that. Had no, he, he always, I think, talks about enforced speech. Hmm. So a government can't, and he was, I think, again, I'm not an expert, um, but I do listen to a lot of podcasts and he hears around hmm. a fair bit. Um, the government can ban language. He didn't seem to have such a problem with that, but a government nowhere in the world can enforce language. And that was the, that was the difference. And I think without the attachment to the to the group he's talking about in this issue, the transgender movement, without the attachment to that group, just that statement by itself, I think most people would go, yeah, I think that's pretty fair. But then when you bring in the examples of the community we're talking about, that's when it blows up. Yeah, that's right. And the, I'm going to take it, the, the guiding idea here, and with a lot of this stuff, is the idea that uh, transgender people are harmed in some real way yeah. by being misgendered, yep. that that's a real problem. And therefore the government is, you know, within its rights to to compel people not to do that because it, they're protecting yeah, sure. that group of people. But the idea of forcing people to use a various word. Look, I don't disagree with you at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anyone who knows me and who's read my uh, read my blogs and stuff sees I'm a huge advocate for the LGBTI world. Mm. Um, that doesn't move away from the fact that having a, a government say you now must say this. I mean, if it was any other sector of society, you now must call um, people who are white-skinned Europeans. You can't use white or Caucasian anymore. You must use the word. You know, it, it just yeah. it doesn't make sense. No, I think that's I think that's right. I, mean, I think the, in the sense that the, the the interesting thing about the Peterson case, so I, I've seen some posters up around Sydney. So evidently I noticed from these posters on the street, Jordan Peterson clearly is coming to Sydney. Oh, he's, he's just and been here for two or three days and he's right, been okay. there now. He's on okay. Q&A over there in the weekend. Is that right? Yeah. So this is how un- unplugged from, from this I am. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there were people, there were posters up calling on people to protest Peterson's visit and although I'm you know it's possible there's there's things Peterson's done that are more outrageous than the things I know about but it strikes me that you know because Peterson basically became famous off this one issue yeah I mean, of course he's now become famous in his own right for his ideas and all the rest of it but the initial idea was it's because he refused to agree with this piece of legislation yep. that he became famous and I mean I take it that at that point it strikes me things have, have I mean it it seems a little bit worrisome to me that it's a legitimate. It's seen as a reason to protest against someone, label them transphobic, just because they object to a new piece of legislation going through that's never existed anywhere in the world before. Mm. I totally. I mean, it it bothers me somewhat that that it's considered now to be absolutely beyond the pale to object to things that are basically totally new. Uh, and object them only in the kind of conservative sense of, yeah, I think this might be going a bit too far, not to substantive, I mean, because Peterson's point is not substantively like, well, we shouldn't be concerned. I mean, he's not saying everyone should just call everyone by their biological gender or something mm. like that. He's just saying like, yeah, you're right. The the particular legal mechanism here is questionable. I mean, it seems to me that at least is within the bounds of like reasonable speech to to question it. And if if that in itself is transphobic, even to question the idea that, 
the government should should step in in that way. That seems to me to be. I think that's one of the one of the problems in society today, perhaps. And as someone who's a philosopher, maybe maybe you've got some thoughts on this. But when, un- unless you're doing it to harm, so in other words, you're causing trouble. When has the idea of asking questions ever been a problem in society? Where it seems today, and uh, not to harp on about social justice warriors, but in various aspects of society, to even ask a question, you know, like, I would like to understand this, and this might get me some flag. I would like to ask the question, I'll just use the transgender as an issue. Someone who grew up biologically male, who transitions to um, being female, right? 100% support. You're, I'm with you all the way. Who then competes in a physical sport with the, um, the 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 benefits of growing up male and having all that testosterone? I'd like to ask the question: Is that fair? Now, me literally asking that question, I, I could get kickback for that. But I mm. genuinely want to know: Is that fair? I want to know: Is the fair on the muscle mass, on the different bone structure? If it's a, is a physical game like one a striking game, there were some examples in MMA of a of a, a transgender woman being there, who the females in that thing said they've never been so hit, hit so hard in all their life. I'd like to ask those questions. Now, me asking that question here publicly might get me flack, but it's a valid question. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's... I mean, that, that's an area of the debate that I think is... Um, yeah, like a, the, the, the sporting question, I mean, at firstly, I don't really want to touch it, for, for, but not because it's so controversial, more like I, I, I kind of don't care about it in the sense that, I mean, and I understand why people do. And I mean, there was a tennis player recently who was uh, hitting out against uh, a famous female tennis player. Oh, saying never that It was never, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was yeah. saying that, that uh, trans women shouldn't be able to play in the, the women's. Uh, well, you know what she did? Apparently, she said something like that and she got a lot of stick. And so she actually went, okay. I won't say it anymore. I'm going to go away and do some research. Mm. And then she came back and she was more solid. And this is a woman who was one of the first high-profile lesbians in the world who came out, fought for lesbian rights. Probably one of the reasons that the trans community can have some of the freedoms. I'm not saying they've got an easy road. They've got today is because a woman like Navratilova. And now she's, you know, she's somewhat of a pariah. Yeah. Yeah, look... it's a, it's a genuine. I think I think you're right to say it's a question that needs to be talked about. I mean the. I wonder I mean, if this is I mean, look, Mike. I do have a kind of overall point I'd like to. Yeah, sure, go for it. Here, which is, Shall is I stop? A, I'll just shut up for a bit. And let you talk. No, no, no. Look, uh, look. It's, geez, it's your show. Uh, <laughs> no, but, it's our show. <laughs> it's good. It's very democratic of you. <laughs> but no, but I, I take it that I mean the general issue here is just I don't want to get too much in the sporting question because I sure. don't really have clear clear thoughts about it. Um, but the the. I think the general issue here, which is the more philosophical one about about asking questions and where you stop with that, I take it that there's – so I, I would like to make a distinction with hate speech between second-person and third-person hate speech. That okay. is, if I, if I shout an ethnic slur at someone, like yeah. that's what I – second-person, directly directed at that person – that kind of that hate speech is is clearly direct, and it's it's the idea that that's some somehow similar to an assault, for example, is is much clearer than it is in the third person. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff now, I mean, the Jordan Peterson case is a really clear example of this. That talking not to someone but about them, even in the most scholarly terms, is considered possibly to be a form of of hate speech. Now. I won't say that that mari- that that worry is totally baseless, right? The worry, the concern there is that. People saying things in the third person about, say, the, the transgender community 
can harm them and you know at a, at a subjective level right it, it can make them you know people feel attacked bad you know more than bad you know re- really damage them the problem with that is though that I, I i take it in the end there's there's no clear dividing line between the the speech that might have those negative effects and might not i mean this mm-hmm. is where the, the question of effects comes in because it's it's taken that certain forms of speech inevitably have certain negative effects and other forms of speech are just okay and i think that's that's basically incorrect right i think it's possible for forms of speech to i mean anything anyone says can will have all kinds of effects right that it'll influence people in all kinds of different ways mm-hmm. so for example it's true that if you if you let like a racist speak on a college campus which is something people are very concerned about it might inspire people who listen to them to become racist mm-hmm. It might also encourage people, you know, people might listen to it and think what a load of bullshit and they'll, they'll fight the against other way, it or something. Yeah. Right? And that really is is the variability I'm talking about, that it's – and it's it's not because I'm a kind of liberal free speech advocate. It's it's just because I think the the idea here is that, that people are – I'm going to paraphrase – uh, Michel Foucault, the philosopher I mainly work on here, but he, he has this great phrase. He, he said in an interview, he said, "People's minds aren't made of soft wax; they they react to things." And I take it that people, that this debate revolves as if people are made of soft wax, right? That if if someone says something offensive, it will just damage people. If someone says something racist, it will just convince everyone to be racist. I mean, we know this isn't the case. If this were the case, uh, we'd. Everyone would still be as racist and misogynistic and homophobic as they were. There'd be no chance of progress because no one would ever develop ideas against that in the first place. The only way these ideas, I take it, have developed is in reaction to the existence of homophobia and misogyny and racism. So the idea that it's it's a huge goal to close down Mm -hmm. all those forms of speech, I think totally misunderstands the way political dynamics work. Right, and, that, and that's my concern about this stuff. It's that it's possibly a tactical own goal to to close down that space. And I tend to think of that. I mean, I'm not the only person to say this, but that the rise of Trump, at least in part, is attributable to a reaction against the closing down of that space, and that the way the left have, by and large, reacted to the Trump phenomenon, which is to double down mm. and demand that free speech, you know, whatever, be closed down even further, um, simply provokes the very phenomenon that drove Trump in the first place. I mean, well, and one of the ironies is, of course, years gone past, and we're talking sort of maybe more America, but in general, the left has been the bastion of free speech, and now it seems to be the left is the one fighting against free speech. I mean, you see it on the college campuses. I had a conversation with someone the other day about stand-up comedy, and I'm like, who gets to make the jokes? And uh, this person was basically saying, you know, you can't make a joke about this group unless you're a part of it and this group unless you're a part of it and this group. And I'm like, okay, well, that's the death of stand-up comedy. Um, So the other thing it may do, I was thinking as you were speaking about shutting down those areas, is the other thing it may do is also send that conversation underground. Mm. And that racist who is standing up at the university speaking um, I'm not saying is it better, is it worse, but what would happen if that then became a behind doors conversation and that community grew out of the public sphere? Is that even more dangerous still than within the public sphere? 
Yeah, I mean, look, that's broadly I agree with this. And I think there's, I mean, there's a phenomenon they talk about in, in psychoanalysis, the return of the repressed, right? That, I mean, so I'm very keen on psychoanalytic theory. In psychoanalysis, you know, you talk about psychological repression, which I take it everyone everyone kind of knows what that is. Like if you have like a bad or uncomfortable thought, but instead of dealing with it, you repress it. Right, push I, it down deep. Yeah, and I think this is essentially the kind of, what this language-focused strategy in the political area ends up being, it's a form not of dealing with the existence of racism in our society, but of repressing mm-hmm. and not repressing racism and repressing our knowledge of the existence of racism. So it's not it's not actual racism that's you know repressed. I mean, for, in particular, the the existence of you know very large economic disparities between white people and you know, ethnic minorities. It's primarily anyone talking about it in a way. So, for example, if you say, I mean, what's that uh, that example that if you if you say that uh, you know black people are on average poor, that, that that seems to be very condescending, despite the fact it's a kind of factually accurate statement that needs to be made if we're going to address the actual very real inequalities. Right. Uh, so you can't portray black people as being as being poor. That would be considered politically incorrect. Well, I mean, that, that, I mean, I'm setting that up as a kind of hypothetical example, but in that example, what you're doing is repressing evidence of the existence of racism, not actually dealing with it. And I, th- this is my concern about this stuff, that uh, precisely that if you repress things, they're just going to fester and come back because you're not really dealing with the, the root and branch structure of racism in our mm-hmm. society. So, I mean, this is, I, I could talk to you for hours about this kind of stuff. I could go on. I'd like to talk some specifics about your actual, about Trump mm-hmm. and about, because I'm a political tragic, as I emailed you this morning whilst I was watching the Cohen thing, I was thinking, we got to get there. Jace, do we want to, because, so what we're saying is political language that's used and the way it's understood and then how what's enacted on that. We, we found a little clip, I don't know if Jason, if we still got it, which is f- literally from this morning's session with Cohen. This was probably live within the last hour of us filming, where Cohen was talking about how Trump talks to him and what he knows it means. And then I guess the reason he's in trouble is his actions that he took from that. So should we play this, Jason, and just have a bit of a listen? Uh, you suggested that the president sometimes communicates his wishes indirectly. Uh, For example, you said, quote, Mr. Trump did not directly tell me to lie to Congress. That's not how he operates, end quote. Can you explain how he does this? Sure. It would be no different if I said, that's the nicest looking tie I've ever seen, isn't it? What are you going to do? You're going to fight with him? The answer is no. So you say, yeah, it's the nicest looking tie I've ever seen. That's how he speaks. He doesn't give you questions. He doesn't give you orders. He speaks in a code, and I understand the code because I've been around him for a decade. And it's your impression that others who work for him understand the code as well? Most people, yes. Mr. Cohen, I don't know whether we should... That's it. So um, perhaps my understanding of what we were going to talk about is slightly different now than at the start. He's talking about how Trump talks and what he means, but I guess in the action from that was in what Cohen went and did. You had your research in particular, and the and the actually you've got this your your lectures this afternoon, isn't mm, it? Yep. So really, only if people are seeing us live, are you going to get a chance to go and um, check out Mark in action? But you're talking about Trump 
and the response from the left and the right to this sort of equation. Mm-hmm. So can you expand? I mean, we've been talking about language in general, but specifically, yeah, yeah. give us your give us your thoughts. And, and obviously, keep some powder dry for your lecture. No, but, you know, no, no, no. but I mean, give us your thoughts. Yeah, this powder isn't that dry at this point. I mean, this, this is a, I mean the, the lecture I'm giving is based on an article that's already written. It's going to okay. come out in, in a while, and I've given you know stuff on it before. So, But it always changes every time you give it, which is a beauty part of the stuff. But look, Trump... Is really a really interesting case here because he's a nexus of a whole bunch of different stuff that's going on. So a lot of the stuff we've said, I mean, we've already mentioned Trump, right? He's relevant to all this stuff already we're talking about. Yeah. But he's also a really interesting case in point because I think Trump is someone who basically does understand language in the way I think it politically needs to be understood. That is, he understands that you use words to get an effect. I mean, actually, Trump is someone who basically uses words only to get an effect. He doesn't care about the truth of them or the meaning of them. So let's say um, build that wall using Mm -hmm. those words. He knows, I mean, he knows that's never going to be built. He, he knows that that's not going to happen in the way he first of all said it was going to happen. I think you're giving him too much credit. <laughs> no, I mean, you know. I mean, the Trump thing is interesting because Trump is on the record uh, during the campaign or shortly thereafter saying that when he's doing a re- rally, if the energy is dropping in the reality, he just says, we're going to build a wall. Yeah. Because he knows that'll amp people up. So that's a classic example, right, that, that for him, that is a phrase he knew he could use to energise people, energise his base and basically get elected. And that is his interest in that. Now, In terms of actually building the wall, well, I mean, I I wouldn't put it past him to build the wall, Uh, but precisely because, I mean, I mean, here here I'm, you know, going to get into more tenuous territory, but I think the wall is essentially, I mean, again, not it's not a word, but it's a symbol. Mm. The wall is is primarily a symbol, and the idea that a physical wall, and I mean, this has been said by Trump's critics, like the wall's not going to really do anything. Like, you, you know, is that is that really, you know, what makes a decisive difference to migration where there's a physical barrier? I mean, of course it doesn't. It's primarily, a, even if he builds the wall, it's primarily a symbol he uses to signal to his base. And again, he, he knows that. And part of it is I'm, I'm successful. Look, I'll say I'll get it done. I'll get it done. I'm protecting you. Although all those stats prove otherwise that the wall will really do anything. Mm, yeah, that's right. But yeah, that's right. So the the, the wall is not going to do anything very much. But I mean, this is there's a real paradox in the anti-Trump rhetoric here. I think, which is on, on the one hand, people people on the left who criticise Trump, and, and I mean people to Trump's left, which of course includes a lot of Republicans, they will say, oh, "Well, look, it's not going to do anything." Mm. And on the other hand, they will kind of simultaneously say, "Oh, like Trump's a tremendous racist who's trying to discourage immigration from America uh, to America." Well, you know, kind of those two things are in, in some co- conflict. I mean, I take it that the reality is that Trump is not actually uh, enacting policies that are radically anti-immigration in a way that, say, Obama didn't. The, the, there's not a huge difference in, in the practical terms in what's, what Trump's doing. The big difference is in the words he uses and the way it comes across, mm. like the symbolisation. Um. Okay, the, I think straight away about some of the things that Trump has done that's affected and impacted immigration, like the quote-unquote Muslim ban, like the separation of families at the borders. The thing that people don't realise about separation of the families at the borders is all those families are completely legal. They're not illegals turning up to the border because by law you're allowed to turn up to a border and apply for refugee status. Mm. So when you separate them, I don't know if that's immigration per se, but there seems to have been some things. I, I, I agree that 
you know, um, British people coming to America to immigrate or Kiwis or, you know, even people from third world countries coming to immigrate probably hasn't changed that much. But the other group, the group that he would think are lesser, seem to have been impacted pretty heavily oh. versus Obama. I mean, the, the statistic that, like, look, I mean, I'd have to look at all the statistics again, but the statistic that really stood out was widely reported at the time was in the first year Trump was in office, mm. the deportations dropped versus the last year that Obama was in office. I mean, the the point I'd make is that, that the basic uh, the basic policy that's in place hasn't varied. Namely, people who are quote-unquote illegal uh, remain uh, illegal. It's still the case that... Uh, the, you know the U.S. authorities will try to deport them. It's true that um, it's true that there's been a kind of ramping up of, of ICE under Trump. That there's some, some more things happening. On the other hand, uh, it, it's the case that a lot of Trump's far right supporters actually drifted off because people are saying, "Oh, Trump's not actually acting on immigration." Yeah. Yeah, 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 the. Uh, the Muslim ban is an interesting one as well, and I take it that I mean this is something I do address in my paper, but uh, briefly. So I take it the the Muslim ban is mainly different in the rhetoric used rather than the the substance. So it's true that tr Trump's saying, and this is what's considered absolutely outrageous. Trump goes and says, "Yeah, we're going to ban people coming in from Muslim countries or whatever. You know, we've mm. got to have a halt in this immigration till we work out what's going on." People are like, "This is outrageous. It doesn't make sense. What you're saying is illogical, and you're targeting a particular minority, and so on." But you're saying the outworking of that is not that different from the Obama. Well, that's right, it's not, and it's not that different from the way U.S. immigration mm -hmm. policies worked for the last hundred years, which right. is selective, depend on what country you come from. So that's absolutely standard for US immigration policy, the discrimination based on what country of origin you have, which therefore, of course, has a racial dimension, a religious dimension, all that stuff. That's written into the way, not only American, because every other country in the world then followed that policy. That's how immigration policy in the 20th century basically came to work. Mm -hmm. So what Trump's doing there, and again, I think it's, and this is what people, my, my concern with, with the left's response to Trump is to get totally hung up on the words he uses yeah. rather than the actual effect. Well, that's hilarious when you watch people like Kellyanne Conway or um, whatever his TV lawyers called it, and the mayor of Rudy Giuliani, come out onto TV and they and the hosts go, this is what Trump tweeted this morning. And they both go, yeah, yeah, but this is what he meant. And it's like there are Trump interpreters. And on some level, that's what Cohen, I think, was doing. Mm. He was saying, I know what he meant. Mm. And this is what he told meant me to do, although he didn't instruct me in, uh, directly. So there are, seems to be that there are people who, uh, well, then, okay, step back. Then you have to go, is that true, that he means something different from what he says? Or is he just putting his foot in it constantly and other people are cleaning up the mess by claiming that's not what he meant? Like there was one the other day, um, I saw it on CNN. It was, I can't, I'm not going to remember what it is, but um, if you, uh, if you Google, it's a quote in, in YouTube, CNN, it's a quote, it'll come up. But but um, there was a tweet that had the quote in it from Trump and the host was talking to one of his administration and the <laughs> the host quoted the tweet and the administration from, um, you know, from Trump said, that's not what he said. But it's not, well, actually, it's literally a quote from what he said. So there was no ambiguity there either. So then this flows on to what I was thinking about. What about all the lies? Mm. What about all just the complete bullshit that you're constantly hearing from Trump? And how does that pack into your, what he says, what he means and how it's enacted on? Well, I mean, again, I mean, on this front, I find it very hard to see the difference between Trump and other politicians. In fact, I mean, if anything, the opposite is true, right? The idea that Trump is, I mean, of course, Trump, Trump is a liar, right? 
But I mean, I take it it's fairly well established and understood at this point that politicians generically lie all the time, mm. and they lie, but they lie in a different way to Trump. And this is one of the kind of important things, right? That the it's considered perfectly normal for a politician to come up for elections, say they're going to do a whole bunch of stuff and then not do any of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if anything, and the, the wall, I think, is an example of this, Trump is carrying through more on the agenda he said he was going to carry through on than, than the average politician. So uh, Trump is is more honest in that that sense. I mean, there was a, a great... Um, a great article, and it's now a book, but I haven't read the book. There was a great article during the election uh, by a Marxist theorist in the United States called Chris Catone, who he wrote an article called "Why Not um, Why Not Trump?" is the article. It's and one of the things he said in that article that always stuck with me. He said even when yeah, you've, you've got the, <laughs> I've 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 not said his name right. Put, put, put the word platypus in there. That's the website it's on. Um, <laughs> But the, yeah, he, he said, even when Donald Trump lies, he tells the truth. And this really, really struck me as getting... So explain that. Yeah. Explain so that. The, the, here's the thing, right? So Trump, Trump, for example, always gets a list flat for getting his, his statistics wrong, his facts wrong. So he'll get up and say something and then you'll get the fact checkers being like, yeah, no, you, you're wrong about that. Mm. Uh, so, where, and then you have Hillary Clinton who gets up and knows all the statistics. But I take it that what, what happens with a standard career politician like Clinton... Is um, <laughs> I've badly mangled the guy's name. Uh, Just put "Why not Trump?" Yeah, why not Trump? Sorry, mate. Uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, um, so Hillary gets yeah, up with all so Hillary the gets up with the statistics. Yeah. And what she does there is get gets the factual information correct yeah. in order to mis- mislead people. And that's the standard politician's manoeuvre, right? You seem very plausible and above board, but basically you're, you're tricking people. That's mm-hmm. the uh, trans politician is the opposite, which is he speaks to people's direct experience in a way that makes sense to them, which is why he's popular with his base. Yeah. They recognise what he's saying, even though that he just makes the facts up on the spot. So he's like, yeah, our country is being swamped with illegal immigration and then just makes up some number. But people effectively feel what he's saying uh, and 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 consequently, um, I mean, for example, when he, when he goes and says, "Ah, oh, look, you know, America's in a terrible position." I mean, you know, and people can go and go. Well, look, actually, if you look at the precise growth figures, you're wrong, Donald Trump. About, but the fact is that people out there feel like their lives are terrible. Yeah, and therefore those bills aren't going away. Yeah. they're getting worse. So he therefore ca- captures the essential truth of the experience the people he's talking to. Yeah, and that I mean, okay, like they're, they're so Trump's a liar. The other politicians are liars. But there's there's a level at which Trump lies that other people don't like at a. Yeah, and there's a level at which he's more truthful. Well, that's interesting. Do you think that's a calculated measure, or do you think he stumbled upon this formula? Like, do you think he's a he's an unwitting idiot and f- has fallen into it, uh, or do you think he's a genius and it's all quite precisely planned? I think he's an unwitting genius, right? I think Trump is <laughs> Trump is someone who just instinctively feels, and I, I take it this is what he's done in business, and it's now what he does in politics. He instinctively feels for. The thing to say yeah. to to convince people, right? That's that's what his his business is: negotiating or the art of the deal. So he he says what will cut through, and he's been incredibly successful. He's become president mm. at playing a, a game which career politicians just totally aren't used to, right? So he he knows what to say. He he, he so what he is is brilliant marketer, essentially, and, and he's marketing himself. himself. Yeah, 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 and and his prowess and. I guess that, interestingly, maybe a bit away from language now, talking more pure politics, is what's going to happen if his um, 
house of cards falls. If his tax return comes out and he's not rich, or, well, he is rich, obviously, but he's not as rich as he claims to think, or there are links to Russia shown in his tax returns, or, so then what? If his house of cards falls, you know, it's like the Edsa. If he becomes the Edsa, you know, the car in the 1950s, which was the worst ever car, best marketed, worst ever car. If he becomes that, I think, oh, the Edsil, I think it's what is it? Edsil. If he becomes that, brilliant marketer, brilliant all that, but then, you know, the, the, the doors fall off, literally. Then what? But isn't this, I mean, this, I take it, is what Trump's done again and again in his career, right? He'll set up a company, you know, he'll set up a casino, uh, it'll, it'll run for a while, eventually it'll go bankrupt and he'll walk away clean. I mean, this seems to be be the Trump tactic, which works very well. I wonder, I wonder if any of the, I wonder with Mueller, Mueller mm-hmm. when he releases his, if he'll be Teflon, the Teflon Don then, or I wonder if he won't, that'll be an interesting, look, I'm a political tragic, that's why I was up yeah, this morning yeah. at six o'clock watching stuff. When that report comes out, I will be glued. But I take it that even if Trump, I mean, worst case scenario, and admittedly, like I'm, I, I am kind of a news junkie but I t- one thing I haven't gone down, and not not to you know cast judgment on you, because God knows the number of news stories I followed that over the you years. You can judge me, but it's okay. Yeah, okay. But the the one thing I, I that stuff, the investigation of Trump, I haven't been following in detail. Right. But I, I take it that worst case scenario, what Trump's going to get convicted of a crime, and what his, I mean, isn't it just going to be a Nixon situation where he'll pencil pardon him? Don't know. Don't know, don't know. I, I I wonder if Pence is a bit more calculating than that because mm. if Pence pardons him during his first term, for example, he Pence won't get re-elected. Um, I wonder if Pence really wants to be president, if he won't pardon him and it'll be yeah. something worse. I mean, th- th- it's possible, but like, I mean, we re- there's a lot of kind of hypotheticals in there. The idea oh, that course. Trump's not only going to be charged, then convicted, then all this stuff, sitting president, um, I mean, it would be unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I don't think I don't think he'll be going anywhere in this term. I think that he'll see out the term, even if it's, these things do come out. And I think his risk is I can't remember the exact crimes he's committed. Oh, I'm sorry, he's been <laughs> accused of faux pas there. Um, but but there's some pretty serious ones where the statute of limitation runs out in the first term, first year of what would be his second term. So. Cohen said it today, and there are others who have said it, that Trump never started this process to be president. He started this process to you know, build his brand more. But I can tell you, if that's the case, he will be fighting tooth and nail to win the next one because he won't want to be exposed to crimes that, as president, he basically can't be charged with, but as an individual mm. ex-president, he can be charged with. But in quite a small window that he could be charged yeah, with. Yeah, but it's during the second yeah. term. So you might find that if it's true that he wasn't quite that keen on being president or that wasn't the thing, I think he will be absolutely keen to win next time. And look, you know, the Democrats are doing everything they can to help him get re-elected day by day as it goes past. So it's going to be fun. I mean, I'm already involved. That's why I'm a tragic in this area. And you yeah. are you you are correct to judge me. It is the <laughs> correct thing to do. I actually had the Minister of Health sitting there a couple of weeks ago and I said to him, I don't know what the fuck's going on in the New Zealand political scene at the moment. I don't have the headspace to cover all the American stuff and the New Zealand stuff, and I'm afraid you guys aren't as interesting. <laughs> and it's true. It's true. I just just kind of, I'm sucked in. Mm-hmm. But I love it. But there is the thing that, you know, America, uh, when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. So it is important for us to have a handle on you know, the geopolitical scene as well. Yeah, sure. I was thinking about that before I came in here, which is I was hoping you didn't ask me anything about New Zealand. Sounds like you won't because, you know, but I think this, What's is, this is the way What's our Prime Minister's name at the moment? 
Well, she, that's the one thing that is Just widely known because she, yeah. she's Just actually quite a kind of worldwide celebrity. Uh, for yeah, she's, she's the Justin Trudeau of the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. yeah, and she's I mean she's a she's a world first. She's done that first first sitting premiere to, to take maternity leave and all the rest of it. I think you know what I think it's amazing. I think it's I don't want to sound like a wanker or anything, but I've, I've worked with her in various capacities over previous radio station incarnations and stuff. And I, I, I connect contacted her when she had the baby and just went, you know, this is amazing. You are you're setting a precedence. It's a great example. It wasn't planned. It's not like that was the, the objective, obviously. And what's really happened? Has the country suffered for it? No. So and it just, she's not married. And, 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 and I didn't and, know that. And she just, it, I think it's great. I think it's awesome. In fact, I'm doing what I can now to try and get her in here. And I, and I, I didn't work with Clark, her partner, but he was at a radio station at the same time as me in the same building. And I'd love to get them both in here and the baby because this is what we do you know I mean the baby can have a bottle and the three of us can have a beer you know it's, it'll, it'll be great so yeah. Jacinda if you're listening she's not listening but yeah so yeah but no Simon, I, Simon I, Bridges would have, a, have Simon Bridges would probably have a stroke if she was on here having a beer with her baby or something like that yeah. you think so he's yeah, the he, leader he, of the opposition just, just so you know he'd just oh, die right. yeah I didn't know do you um, see Donald Trump I guess it's almost a moot question but and the American system is incredibly different from other places in the world. Like what we're talking about now and the political words used, what they mean and the action from them. Do you see that clearly in Australia as well? Because you use Donald, in your lecture, you're using Donald Trump as the example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it because he's such the obvious example or yeah. is he different from the rest of the no, world? He's, or he's a very special case. I mean, I don't, I, you know, I'm, I guess I'm not across the rest of the world enough to know exactly how unique he is. Yeah. I don't think, yeah. I mean, it, Australia doesn't have anything. Uh, like this going on. I mean, but who yeah, does? Yeah, no, that's <laughs> well, yeah, Hanson, but Hanson's not. I mean, the, the Hanson phenomenon is quite different. I think, you know, it's the Hanson phenomenon is kind of politically led. Like, I mean, Hanson is not a master manipulator, and if, if she was, the, her trajectory would have been very different. Mm. Um, I mean, Trump, Trump's a unique case because he's, he's come onto the political scene with just a totally different attitude to language to what all the career politicians have. I mean, admittedly, Pauline Hanson doesn't have the same attitude to language as career politicians, but it's more just because she doesn't have a filter, not because she knows how to... But that again implies. Does Trump have a filter? Yeah, that, that, that implies back again. It's a plan for Trump rather than just happens to be like the way he talks. Sure, no, and I agree, and I agree that's right. And it's also one of the reasons that, that I think Trump is popular with his base because he's he's kind of speaks off the cuff rather than like a politician. But I also I think, think there was the research case, that said he's got the vocabulary of a fifth grader. Yeah, which is what you again make you know. This is a sensible way to talk if you want to connect with ordinary people in a democracy, which uh, oddly politicians don't seem to have become clued into. Yeah. But I, I take it that, that Trump isn't a principal politician. Like, I mean, Hanson, even though we may think her, her principles are totally abhorrent, I think he's kind of a principal politician, or at least she's animated by particular animosities. Mm. Trump, I mean, okay, there's, it's sure that there is a kind of history of Trump. A lot of Trump's positions, you can find him saying stuff in the past that um, indicated that that he he thought in the way roughly that he does now, but I take it Trump's just you know a total pragmatist in this sense that he he ran on the platform he thought he thought he could win on and that was getting him a lot of attention. Mm. I mean it's it's abs I think you're absolutely right to suggest that it's not totally clear whether Trump thought he could win or that his plan was to win. He was, but I think for Trump it was a win win either way in the sense that it'll grow his brand whether he wins or not. And and he didn't bother putting any much of his own money in it. It wasn't <laughs> you know it's just it's all gravy to him right, but. The, I take it that, that Trump isn't 
isn't a principled guy, basically. That he's he's not ideological and he's he's willing to go with whatever he thinks is going to work. So more pragmatic than ideological. Yeah, and again, I think that's something that really separates him from the mainstream politicians. Which is interesting. I mean, oh yes, I mean yes and no because what it means, what I've seen with Trump, is that he's changed, like he has pivoted, and I think. It's one of the most frustrating things about politicians is they'll say one thing because it's popular one year and then they'll say the opposite the next year. So in that you can kind of see a similarity between your regular politician and Trump that he'll find the he'll find the the button that to push, build that wall, lock her up, whatever it is, and he'll push that button. That as a way of connecting with the the you know voters, all politicians do that on some level. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that um, I think that the stand-up, the psychology of the stand-up politician is that they they kind of do have beliefs and then they kind of they compromise on them. I mean, the, one of the problems that that's what differentiates Trump from the the average politician here, I think, is the average politician when they do that, when they do the kind of U-turn on their beliefs, mm. like it's kind of obvious, and and people like look at it and go like, what the hell, you know, you're a hypocrite. Trump, on the other hand, even when he completely changes mind, even when he changes mind mid-sentence. <laughs> Like, he does it in a kind of authentic way. It's like, oh, you know, I mean, it's been said about Trump that he kind of just believes whatever the last person in the room with him said to him, you know. Yeah. And and I think there's some truth to that. But but he kind of just does it earnestly. So he's like, oh, yeah, like I've just seen a video of what's happening in Syria and now I've decided to bomb Syria. And Because that's what happened with the wall, wasn't it? Because from what I've heard, that he literally the idea of the wall was just popped up in a meeting one day before no, the election. No, the, report, the reports are the idea of the wall was actually a way that his... Uh, his team oh, yes. working with him wanted to remind him to talk about immigration. So the, they, they got him to talk about the wall as a way to remind him to talk about immigration. But of course the wall took over the conversation. Mm. So it was like a meme that they fed him mm. as a way to help him remember what the important thing to talk about was, but the important thing became the wall. Yeah. yeah. And it's, but it, I mean, it's exactly, it's, it's the wall is completely Trumpian, right? The, the guy's, Whole you know career was built on building big monumental flashy yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. The the wall is like the perfect thing yeah. for him to get focused on. So and it, you know it it works very well. It works very well because precisely because it's it's like this grand symbol that you can grandstand on. It gets all his enemies very upset, which plays well with his base. Like yeah. they love to see liberals triggered or you know whatever. Yeah. Right, I love and, that word triggered. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's it's it's really. I mean, it's it's one of those words, right? That at first it was like actually a buzzword used by people, and then you know, like people were like, "Don't don't trigger me." And then of course it became, you got to stop coming up on the screen. It became so so much a term of abuse that it's now I take just totally dropped Snowflake out of the lexicon. Now. Triggered, yeah, that's right. So I, I don't think anyone's talking in a positive sense about being triggered anymore because it's become so so maligned. Oh man, right? people, the thing is about I, you now. You now know it's gone so far. You hear people warning one another going be careful because you'll become a meme and it's like it's it's actually oh anyway hey um we've been talking for over an hour it's all right time flies i know it's great fun this is like the tardis for time you come in here and it goes and it flies through is there anything you want to leave us with we know you've got a lecture on today at four o'clock at the university where it's bring up the page jay so we can tell people where it is i mean obviously um most people are going to pick up on this after we've done it not pick up on it live um but we might as well tell people where you're going to be this afternoon i think it's at four o'clock you'll need to give us some more info there we go get down get down uh four to five and it is uh in the 
Boone's Lecture Theatre in the Arts Building. So there you go. So if mm. people happen to, it's a public lecture, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yes. So anyone can go. So four to five. And that's with the uh, the Media, Film and Communications Department. And they've brought you across because this is more of a communication message because you're a philosopher as well. Yeah, I guess, I mean, actually, you know, I, I, um, I'm not sure what, what kind of reaction I'm going to get to this this talk because it's the, the guys invited me mainly because I've written about racism, uh, before, I mean, that's that's something I've done research on, but not about the language question. And, and okay. my stuff, I mean, it was much more about talking about the stru- racist structure of American society, which I still insist is a real thing. I mean, the the way I'm, I'm couching this really is that, look, you know, I've, I've talked about how, how we actually should analyse and deal with racism in society. And, and this is a matter of talking about how inadequate I think the way that we're trying to tackle racism now it's that by focusing on the you know racism at the level of language mm. you're missing the, the real serious structural stuff well that's because well, what, what you're talking about earlier actually i was going to say earlier when you're saying by banning the, the the third party racism as you kind of referred to it and the like asking questions um taking that to so extreme you're gonna it's gonna it's gonna um stifle uh, socio uh, uh, anthropological research into societal issues, isn't it? Because if you're not allowed to ask a, a semi, you know, inverted commas, racist question of are black people poor because they're black, then you can't research it. Yeah, look, I, I think that's right, and I think that's. I mean, obviously, as a university researcher, that's something. I think does need to be protected is is the freedom to go in different directions with your research. Like, and you may have to go down an unpopular rabbit hole, but uh, yeah, that's. It seems that the whole, I mean, I've said for quite a long time that there's no such thing as free speech. I see, I would say that there is some free speech because as soon as you've got strings attached to some things that can't be done, then there's tethers, then there's not complete freedom. The flip side to this conversation, not to start a whole new thought right now, is we either have complete freedom to say what, because free speech, you don't need free speech and rules and laws around it for speech we all agree with. Really the idea of free speech and the idea that we need protections around it is for the ugly speech. That's the reason we have it. And so it feels to me that it should be either an all or nothing, because if you don't have all, then you've got nothing. Now that includes things like hate speech and horrible speech and that kind of stuff as well. I'm, I would, if I had to err on one side or the other, I would err on a, a Everyone in, then on the other, but yeah, yeah, no, that's right, and it, it's a really interesting because I'm I'm all for caution. Like I, I think the pre- precautionary principle in politics is a good thing, and but it, it's it's a tough one because both sides of this debate present themselves as being cautious. I mean, mm. the free speech advocates, you say, I want to protect free speech because we don't know where, and that, that's a real concern. Right? We don't know where this is going to end up. If you start banning what people say, how far down the road are you going to go? Mm. And I'm genuinely concerned about this because, as I suggested, the kind of way that the, the term racist is thrown around now, and with some justification, I mean, ultimately, where can you stop in terms of alleging that people are racist? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, But, I mean, of course, the, the opposite concern is like, well, you know, it's absolutely true that things you say can have a really devastating impact on people. And, okay, so if we want to protect people, we need to set some kind of limits But then that. where's that line? Yeah, no, I, I mean, because that, that's like the idea that you have the, um, you don't have the right not to be offended. Mm-hmm. You know, you just don't have that right. Because anything I say, I mean, I, I, we've said the word cunt on this broadcast, mm-hmm. that will offend some people, mm-hmm. you know, especially if my father's watching. Um, but But what I'm saying is, then who decides where that line is for offence or for 
putting someone in harm's way, like we were talking about the transgender community before. And, you know, a classic example that I I think about when I talk about this is I watched that series I Am Kate about Caitlyn Jenner and one of the trans ladies on that bus ride used the word tranny. Mm. And she was like, oh, no, I call myself a tranny all the time. Mm. It was like she took it as a term of endearment, whereas everyone else in the bus thought it was kind of a hate crime word sort of thing. So who decides? Yeah, Even yeah. within the same community where these words and stuff are applicable. Yeah, look, I think I think that's right. I mean, as I say, like the the, the closest thing to an answer I have is this second person person versus per, third person thing. Like, I think there's you know a good case for if you're actually shouting abuse at someone, it doesn't really matter the content of that abuse. I mean, yeah. we can consider that that's you know assault or something, uh, because I mean, if I shout, if I call someone a cunt, like. Yeah. That's not in Australia though, because you can be a good yeah, yeah, cunt. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. can be as long as you, as long as you say they're a sick cunt, you're but, fine. But that's but, but that's context. That's just, yeah, that's just being Australian. Yeah, but that's context. Yeah, that's yeah, what it we're is, saying. Absolutely. No, I think that's right, and I think that 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 needs to be be included. But I think that's why. But I think that's why the, the context of abusing someone, like if yeah. you, if, you, if someone's screaming abuse at you, like they can say all kinds of things, but they're clearly abusing you. And so just just to back, back. so yeah. second person is me throwing abuse at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's pretty clear. The what what the, the the reason that those words are coming at you. Explain third person again is me talking about about, about you. I I'm not there. Yeah. Like you know, the, and and I mean that at that point, I yeah, I, I guess I would want there to be a presupposition that you can in the third person discuss legally at least. I mean, it's not to say you should say all kinds of things about people in the third person, but. Um, yeah, I, but then I, you got to start to think about, and we've, not to rehash the Jordan Peterson conversation now, but when he talks about the word within the transgender community, but it's not a direct pointing at someone, could someone still claim that that's abusive towards me? Almost could they claim it as a second? Person? No, but the, the problem here is you can, yeah, but you can claim uh, the the problem with that is that in the end you can't. Firstly, third person. I mean, this goes back to the old triggering question. Mm. But third person speech has the capacity. Any third person speech has the capacity to upset someone. Of course, like, everything you, no you say, literally. That's right. So you never know who's going to be. I mean, this is the the effects of third person speech can have all kinds of recursive political ramifications. You don't know what they're going to be. I mean, this is why I think in the end you can't reasonably set set a limit in third right. person speech because you, you just don't know where it's going to go. And, and I mean, certainly from an academic point of view, I think these these things need to be discussed and, and you know, stuff that is apparently overtly transphobic. I mean, the, the question in – so talking about the TERFs, like is it is it legitimate? I mean, Jermaine Greer, for example, you know, got in that terrible trouble because she said that, uh, you know, basically trans women weren't women. Well, okay, but, you know, that of course that, that's transphobic in a sense. But on the other hand, I mean – shouldn't that question be asked like shouldn't the question at an academic level be asked of what you know what are the limits of being a woman what what is what yeah, is but the this is but to me this is the same question as the racism thing mm. right is it transphobic to say that if that's an honestly held belief what about there is um there is writings out there scientific writings biological writings that might support Jermaine Greer's position even if it's abhorrent within society mm. so to me I don't know if that's a metric that one sentence for someone being transphobic or not. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess in the end I'd have to say, like, whether it's transphobic or not should not be the, you know, should, should not be the determinant of whether it's allowed to, to be spoken about in, in, in that context, if you're well, talking about it. So if she was this. yelling at someone, you're not a fucking woman, yeah. that would be second person, which is basically a verbal assault. But having an academic or a private or a public talk about the issue. So it sounds like what you're saying is a way around this, and we'll wrap up with this, might be kind of the third person 
speak, is that what we're saying? Yeah, yeah. Should, it almost should be free-for-all. Should be You should be able to talk about anything subjectively as a subject matter in any context, but maybe throwing it at people as the line to be drawn. Yeah. Look, I, I think so. I mean, look, I don't like to deal in absolutes, and there could be context. You're a philosopher. That, yeah. Well, a lot, I mean, a lot of philosophers do like to deal in absolutes, and it, it's nice to have absolutes. I mean, the, you know, I, I'm not going to rule out. Look, you, you could have contexts where it, it's just – there are contexts that are so so serious where you know you, you actually do need to clamp down on the exercise even of third person speech. I mean, you know, you, you can get into a situation. I mean, the situation that immediately comes to mind is the denazification of Germany after the Second World War. Like, maybe in a situation like that, it was reasonable. I'm not don't have a particular position. Maybe it was reasonable for the Americans to say, well, if you remember the Nazi Party, you're not allowed to teach in universities anymore. I mean. Maybe that was a reasonable thing to do in that situation because yeah. they're very concerned about the the idea that Nazism might come back through yeah, that. Yeah. So yeah, no, they're, they're absolutely they they can. I, I'm not going to say a priori, as we say in philosophy, that there can never be a situation where sure. third person speech. But I, I think that's a reasonable kind of presumption. Like, yeah, all right. It's just, yeah. I mean, if nothing else, it's a bit of a starting point to continue this conversation. Yeah, I think so. And it were a good ending point to wrap up the podcast. Cheers, Pat. Mark if Kelly. It, if it's not the you know because at a third person uh, racism or third person doing is uh, is is bad then this podcast is is, <laughs> is terrible oh my this god been, this is, is all been third party no no it should be banned <laughs> ban the podcast so we went back again but uh thanks mark kelly for coming along and help us um end our podcasting careers now nah, it's been a, it's been a blast actually it's been really interesting and i really appreciate you coming in and the lecture this afternoon uh four o'clock at otago university if people happen to be around and other than that we'll be back thanks mark appreciate it thanks man Then, hey, look, there we are. We're all done and dusted. Now, um, in the forthcoming weeks, we do have a few people still to confirm, but next week we may uh, have in with us Kiwi iconic musician Greg Johnson and also maybe in the same week some of the guys from 660 coming in. That's what we're working on right now. We've had sort of, um, what would you say, Jace, pencil confirmations. So hopefully next week you'll get a couple of podcasts from us, at least certainly one, and there'll be a bit of a music special week maybe. Lots of other people coming up, of course, here in Dunedin. We've got ID Fashion Week on the way. We've got the Fringe Festival coming up. We'll get some good people in to have chats with about that as well. And, of course, as you know, we love talking to the academics coming through, working with Otago University as well, so we'll be getting some more of them in as well. Anywho, until now, um, please, if you're listening to this, head along and subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, and also to our Facebook page. That would be really helpful. And however you've listened to this, be it on Spotify, Stitcher, or the iTunes is the other one, uh, make sure you subscribe as well, and then you will know when our next um, podcast pops up and we can be making sweet, sweet love in your ear holes again with um, with some more Department of Conversation. Yeah, I'm even grossed out a little bit by that. Anyway, hoo-roo!